to Dialogue and Debate with Cumberland Lodge. Last month, we talked to Dr. Mattia Deletti, Sarah Farquhar and Jude Habib about how communities have shown resilience and solidarity throughout the pandemic and how storytelling in particular builds empathy amongst different groups in society. Today, we're delighted to welcome four new guests to discuss the spread of fake news and conspiracy theories during the COVID-19 outbreak and how this has affected trust in journalism and the relationship between society and the media more widely. It was World Press Freedom Day on the 3rd of May, and this year's theme was Journalism Without Fear or Favour. The day celebrated independent journalism and highlighted the importance of press freedom in overcoming the challenges posed by disinformation and hate speech. During today's webinar, we'll delve into these issues with a particular focus on social media and news reporting during the pandemic. I'm delighted to be joined by Imrad Ahmed, founder and chief executive of the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, Robert Cole, global head of communications at the Amar Charitable Foundation and former BBC and Sky News editor, Joey Derso, media and politics reporter for BuzzFeed UK, Amira Selva, Director of Journalist Fellowship at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in the University of Oxford. Welcome to you all. To those joining us on the internet this morning, do please get involved and submit any questions you'd like to put to our guests as we go along. You might not be able to, we might not be able to answer all your questions, um, but we'll do our best to include as many as we possibly can. And you can submit questions via the chat function if you're watching live on Vimeo, or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge, or commenting on our Facebook live stream. If you prefer to remain anonymous, please direct, uh, please direct message uh, us on Facebook or Twitter during the webinar. Please also respond to our social media poll. And the question is, have you personally seen any fake news or misinformation about the COVID-19 pandemic being spread on social media? Turning to you, uh, Rob, um, in what way do you think the current situation is exacerbating threats to press freedom around the world? And are restrictions on travel and press parties impacting on reporting, for example? Well, I'm sure they are. Um, in terms of restricting press freedom, um, people are also very bored at the moment. Um, uh, people are seeing all sorts of uh, fake news about COVID, of course. We've had everything, and you know, I've been a victim of, of it myself. I mean... I was trying the holding my breath in for several minutes and whatever, whatever else you're supposed to do and steam till your throat drops out and stuff like that. So, um, you know, we've all been sort of victims of it. They're the milder uh, forms of it. I can see why people um, are desperate to report on this subject because it's the only topic anyone's talking about, certainly in the UK, but most of the world. Uh, and everyone's looking for a new angle. Uh, and those who are tempted or... or are well versed in creating fake news are going to be they're going to be the first ones to to make that up i mean my only view is that if you're if you're looking for proper decent news which you know is not fake there are a number of things to look out for as we all know um and particularly the right news outlets to go to but yeah the temptations out there now for anyone to come up with something and um, become a bit of a mini hero for a while and do you think it's sort of skewing the way news reporting is going on? Because obviously other things are happening in their world, but COVID is the big story. 
Is it twisting uh, reporting in any way? I'm not sure it's twisting it. I think it's just pushing other stuff out completely. Um, I mean, I know from my own experience, and actually I'm sort of terrible thing to say, but I'm fed up with hearing about COVID now. I switch to the television and I know that the first 20 minutes of the news are going to be COVID, whatever happens, a relentless misery of the number of deaths each day. Um, I think it's simply a news agenda. Having been a you know, television newspaper journalist, plainly we go for the, the big story that we think the most people will be interested in. Um, and because of COVID, because of the number of deaths, the staggering number of deaths, this is going to be the big story. I mean, of course, today there's a sidebar story um, uh, of the, uh, of the oh, I've forgotten his name now, <laughs> um, uh, the um, uh, member of the SAGE who was actually teaching on his, uh, well, was... Yeah, exactly. I, I couldn't think of his name. That's terrible. Thank you, Professor Ferguson. Yeah, uh, and that's a bit of a sidebar. And people saying, "Well, why are they talking about this?" And when there's people dying all over the place. But the truth is, it's another. It's an interesting or more interesting story of hypocrisy, and it's something that the media have gone with. Um, I think if a if a bigger story came along, I'm sure mainstream media would go for it. But there just isn't one. It's going to be a huge story to replace COVID. And are you aware, just getting to the second part of the question, about restrictions on travel and press passes? I mean, is COVID being used as a, you say, as a way of, um, well, is it impacting on the freedom of, 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 the, of the press to get around to report on things? You, are you just getting any sense of that? Do you know, I don't think so. Well, from what I, from what I was speaking to my old colleagues at Sky and BBC yesterday, because I knew it was coming on here, um, they are part of, um, you know, the people that are allowed to get out and about to report on news. They have, as long as you've got your press card, um, you're okay to travel where you want to. So I don't think uh, it's causing that many problems to be wanted to report. Um, I, I, I think in terms of, um, well, I, th I think the people that, w that want to report will report now. I don't think there's any problem with that at all. Um, there's no restrictions as far as I can see other than health restrictions. So, you know, you're seeing the, the daily press conferences uh, where people are doing it all by, um, by video link like we're doing now. Um, but it's not stopping people reporting. No. I just wonder if anyone else has got any comments about, about press freedom in the light of the night of COVID. Has anyone else got any insights into its effect? Um, I think there's a couple of things that are of concern in terms of press freedom and, you're absolutely right in the UK, you know, and in several other countries, South Africa, journalists are classed as key workers, so are allowed to carry on traveling. But that's not the case everywhere. And in certainly certain countries, the Philippines, for example, you are allowed to carry on traveling to report as long as you get a permit. And that permit comes in the Philippines case from the president's office. So on one hand, it looks perfectly sensible, but on the other hand, you start thinking, well, how are these permits going to be given out? Who's deciding who gets them? So it's basically putting another barrier in terms of reporting. I think in the UK, a lot of journalists and a lot of photographers have expressed frustration at un being unable to get inside hospitals and talk to patients, get a sense for the first-hand view of what's going on in the wards for very good reasons. It's, not, you know, it's never been that easy as a journalist to go into a hospital ward, but given, as you said, it's now the biggest story, you know, there is a case for saying there should be some more direct information coming from what's basically the front line of this crisis. And the other third point, which I think is really worth bearing in mind, is um, surveillance and source protection. So we now have the government looking at various technologies to kind of do contact test and tracing, which would be apps on your phone. 
this affects this raises issues of privacy and surveillance for the whole of society, but for journalists in particular, it's very important that they're allowed to kind of carry on protecting their sources and they're allowed to meet people in confidence and that this information is not somehow uploaded to a kind of government database and controlled by other people. Thank you, ma'am. Sort of following on from, from, from that, Mira, um, do you think that uh, an ability to cope with the outbreak has become a source of national pride for some countries and if so, how might this affect the information that the public are receiving uh, through national media? Well, I think there's one thing, if we're talking about fake news and misinformation, in a lot of countries, including the United States, the misinformation is coming from the top. You have, you know, the president or politicians themselves saying things that are blatantly untrue and downright dangerous um, in order to shore up their own position and to cast dispersions on other countries and other governments. So that's one very difficult situation for the media. How do you report when the misinformation is coming from the people who would normally be your sources of information? And the other thing, absolutely, on the nationalistic uh, side of things, there is a, a debate, again, in Britain to some extent, but certainly in other countries, about why, why are we doing ourselves down? You know, the government's doing its best. We're all fighting an emergency. This is an emergency. Why are you being so critical? And in India, Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister, wrote to all the senior editors of the leading outlets to say, will you please be more patriotic in your coverage? Will you please not put India down? And most of them complied, because partly because they didn't want to annoy the government, but also because they made a judgment call that their own readers and viewers would not want to receive these messages that are considered unpatriotic. And that, again, is a very difficult and sensitive space for the media to be in. I guess it's fairly inevitable in what we're facing that people are going to be making international comparisons all the time. I do wonder whether any of, any of the uh, panellists have got any views on that question. If not, if not, don't worry. I can, I can just say on. one last thing on that, just because you yeah. mentioned I'm a member of Green Templeton College. Yeah. And our principal, um, Denise Leavesley, Professor Denise Leavesley, who's head of the Royal Statistics Society, and has given a lot of seminars to us about the importance of statistics, the you know, almost impossibly, impossibility of using statistics internationally. She used to be yep. head of statistics for UNESCO, so she's the same All countries gather their data differently. It's almost yep. always hard to make a direct comparison. And it's very politically sensitive. Statisticians in many countries receive as many death threats as journalists and civil rights campaigners. And, um, and, it's, and very few journalists understand how to read statistics carefully. So I think this yep. is absolutely, and, and we're really seeing all those weaknesses now. Yeah. And um, more, yeah, Rob, do you want to add something there? Uh -huh. No, no, you just uh, <laughs> thought you were putting your hand up. Um, yeah. just, just moving on to uh, another question. Um, do you feel that the media is striking the right balance between positive stories and honest, accurate uh, information about the pandemic? I, I think there's certainly a, a lot of pressure for, for positive stories for newspapers and TV. I did a story recently on the difficulties that, um, that the print press is facing, and someone from one of the big tabloids told me that they really need to put these positive stories on the front pages just to sell papers because you know people know things are awful and people know that loads of people are dying and if you see that just every single day then you know people don't want to want to buy that and then you saw with the story of um you know captain tom moore um raising tens of million pounds of the nhs and that had huge engagement um you know on on, on tv news and in newspapers uh, people went mad for that and i think um you know, it's really difficult to balance these competing interests of holding to the government to account. But from a sort of business perspective, um, media organisations feel if they exclusively do that, then they'll just 
um, lose people, particularly as you get often quite long periods of time when nothing really changes in a substantive way in terms of, you know, we're all waiting for this news about how the lockdown will be eased now with him or on Sunday, but really between now and then we'll get little leaks, but things won't change hugely. So there is this space, I think, where for business reasons, um, news outlets feel the need, like doing these positive stories. Or also, you know, some of these death stories, and instead of just focusing on the horrible ending of people's lives, they'll talk about the great life that someone lives, some of these people, those sorts of stories as well have been doing really well on BuzzFeed and other websites. Hmm. And are there differences between how um, media in different countries strike this balance between positive and negative? I don't know whether you've got any perspectives on that. I, 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 is it a particularly British so. thing to, 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 to home in uh, a lot on the, on the bad news? Well, it's interesting to note that in pretty much every country, um, support for the incumbent, be that left, right, whatever, has either held up or even improved a bit. I think it shows that people, you know, there'll always be people who are fierce critics of the government and always be people who will support them, whatever. But I think in the middle, there are lots of people who are kind of willing to give them the benefit of the doubt or kind of wanting them to succeed. That, of course, could all come crashing down. Um, You know, the more we find out, the more it looks like their mistakes were made, the more you know, we get, you know, we hear things in select committees about things being missed, about decisions not taken at the right time. There are big questions about the timing of the UK's lockdown. And I think we discussed earlier this, these international comparisons, and that is what it will come down to, because people know that this is terrible. They know that tens of thousands of people are going to die. Um, they think the government are, to an extent, you know, very few people believe the government wants, you know, wants people to die, that they're trying to do the best to protect people. But if it comes out that in a year's time we did far worse than France, say, or an, another comparative country, I think that is where, um, you know, the British government could be under massive pressure. It'll be under, and that's why these comparisons are so, so important, because in an absolute terms, this is really bad. And that's the case in every country. Joey, I've got a, another question for you in a moment. But before I ask that, just a quick reminder to everyone who's watching um, that we'd really love you to submit questions uh, during this webinar. So. You can do that by using the chat function on our Vimeo live stream or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our live stream on Facebook. But Joey, just going to to you, um, you've been working in particular on misinformation and social media at BuzzFeed uh, News UK over recent weeks. Uh, Do you know of any examples of mainstream web platform companies cooperating meaningfully with independent journalism outlets to ensure balanced, reliable sharing of information. And are there any, uh, anything we can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic specifically about this? Um, sorry, what exactly was the question? Just going back to, uh, do you know of any examples of mainstream web platform companies cooperating meaningfully with independent journalism outlets to ensure there's balanced, reliable sharing of information? Yeah, so f- Facebook has its sort of fact checker um, uh, tools so what happens is basically facebook if, if if there's misinformation which is seen to lead directly to physical harm like if it says uh you know 5g causes coronavirus or or drink bleach to then it will just sort of delete information about global government conspiracy theories or um this sort of thing which doesn't necessarily lead directly to physical harm facebook's approach is to flag things as false and it does that working with independent fact checkers. And there are lots of these in different languages in lots of countries. You know, the problem is that this is just so vast. It's so Facebook is so huge. It's like trying to moderate, you know, people talking at bus stops or whatever. It's, it's, it's almost an impossible task. So things are flagged on a daily basis and then there might be um, 
rated as false by independent fact checkers. And Facebook does that and it takes it seriously and in many cases does a good job of it and things are flagged as false when they are false. But it's just there's just so much stuff going on there every day that it's almost, I don't know, this is something that Imran works on a lot. It's just almost an impossible task to keep on top of. Perhaps we can ask Imran, is, whether you might want to comment on that one. Well, one of the things we've been looking at is the extent to which um, the social media companies have followed through on their promises to restrict the amount of misinformation on their platforms. And whereas they've made quite, quite bold claims to have, to have taken unprecedented steps to restrict the amount of coronavirus misinformation, I think you can see from the campaign that the Centre for Countering Digital Hate was running last week, for example, highlighting one particular um, source of misinformation, uh, someone who has a large following, who is known to spread identity-based hate, but also has been incredibly active in spreading coronavirus misinformation, that it took an unprecedented push from uh, a coalition of anti-hate organisations, from uh, medics, uh, well-known British uh, medics, from celebrities uh, and others to get them to move albeit very slowly, just on one particular super spreader, so to speak. Um, and even now, some of the platforms, Instagram, for example, which is owned by Facebook and Twitter, haven't moved on that individual. Um, that, that was David Icke, of course, that we've been working on over the last week or so. Um, so we, we see them being very reluctant to take decisive action against those actors that they know are particularly problematic and that really that, that that means it's an uneven playing field so if there are people that are known to spread misinformation and there are outlets for example buzzfeed or the bbc or sky or the guardian or all the other sort of the the the, the print press in the uk that we know try their very hardest at the very least to provide information that is factual that is thought through that is that is uh, that reflects the best possible reporting and two standards that are that are very high that if you're on the same if you're yeah you know, that it's if you're on a have the same access to those platforms as people that um spread information which regardless of whether or not it's true or not is attractive and interesting and, and catchy then you're not operating a level playing field um so having to be factual is actually a pair of handcuffs on the attractiveness of the information of, of the, the, the message that's being spread. Um, and in that respect, mainstream media outlets are, are handicapped on social media platforms against these super spreaders of misinformation who, whose, whose theories uh, may be bonkers, but they in fact are quite sexy and interesting and, uh, and often presented in a very catchy way. So that's, I mean, that's the, one of the frustrations that we've had is that the, the, the idea of a level playing field um, is, is in itself problematic um, and that we'd like those social media companies and those platforms to be much more um, ambitious in the way that they deal with known super spreaders, but also misinformation when it comes up. Perhaps, Imran, you could tell us a bit more about um, your work at the Centre for Digital Hate. and and then relate it to say more specifically, has the pandemic really affected the way, uh, affected your work over the last uh, couple of months? Yeah. 
So, I mean, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate was set up to look at the architecture on social media and digital spaces in which identity-based hate is proselytized. So it looks at the way that uh, a mixture of fake news outlets, um, which provide evidence, and then uh, group spaces in which people can proselytize misinformation to other people, can spin, can try and uh, radicalize people through uh, false information or, or even through a, a, a highly structured version of the truth, um, which is designed to be propagandistic, that they can drive people through to holding very uh, extreme beliefs and potentially through to the spaces that are normally dealt with by countering violent extremism and counterterrorism professionals. So we look at that earlier phase, the, the inculcation of hateful extremism. And it's those spaces in which uh, coronavirus misinformation was first being instrumentalized by, either, and what we've looked at is three types of actors that are involved in using coronavirus misinformation. And that's the, that's the, you know, a very different perspective to that of the rest of the panel that we're interested in. Well, how is misinformation used to inculcate dangerous social phenomena, whether it be hate, violence or um, fraud? So we saw three types of actors being very active uh, in spreading coronavirus misinformation. First of all, hate actors. So um, people that wanted to blame things on Jews or Muslims uh, were very quick to weaponize hashtags like hashtag German Jihad which was funnily enough imported from India, from uh, Modi's uh, supporters in the BJP have been using hashtag Corona Jihad um, and the Lakhani Mosque, uh, where apparently Tabligi Jamat were involved in uh, an event in which coronavirus was spread. So you've got those hate actors who are, who are instrumentalizing it. You've then got um, economically motivated actors. So a lot of spibs basically, who want to sell colloidal silver um, or vitamin C drips. Um, or, uh, and, and in, order, in order to do the medical establishment can't be trusted, and so therefore you have to buy their solutions. So they will spread misinformation about the NHS, about the government's intentions, about the nature of the, of the virus, that there is no virus. In fact, it's a condition which can be dealt with just by a vitamin C drip. And PS, you can buy it at my site here. Um, and the third was uh, uh, just misinformed people. So that's the other thing about social media is, of course, everyone's on social media. Um, you, I, I, I happen to have a few aunties um, who send me uh, sort of various different types of uh, remedy for ailments. I think one of them claims that she can cure cancer with a, a route from uh, the northwest frontier province of Pakistan. Um, and uh, the, the, those, those folks are just misinformed. So we have programs to both monitor, but we've also, um, as an organization, uh, launched a campaign on don't spread the virus, which is, encourages people not to engage with misinformation. So one of the problems of the platforms is that the platforms reward um, engagement rather than factualness because they can't assess factualness using an algorithm. But what they can do is how many times something is liked or retweeted. And one of the things we always say is that something that's something that's factual, people just pass it by. Something that's controversial, people will engage with on social media. So what happens again is that there is an imbalance, that information that's not factual is often advantaged in the algorithms and pushed up people's news feeds and timelines. So 
that information is seen first over governmental over information from credible sources like the NHS or the government. So we've encouraged people to not engage at all, even to say this is wrong. That actually tells the algorithms this is important and so and drives engagement. And for the platforms, that means more people spending time on the site and therefore more ad revenue. And what we've said is when you see it, don't engage with it. Instead, go and find some factual information from a quality source in a quality and reputable outlet and go and retweet that to your followers so that you almost inoculate them against the misinformation that they may be receiving later on from someone else. And so those are the, those are the perspectives that we come at, this, come at this debate from. And one of the things that's really important to us and why I'm always you know, delighted to speak to journalists who, who, who represent... Uh, that's you know the, the the mainstream media is that in fact we are trying to ensure that the information that gets out there that within that that we counterbalance the misinformation with good information and that's been one of the real challenges of coronavirus it's been one of the things that's been made that we're, we're becoming ever more aware of that sometimes pernicious ideas are advantaged on social media whereas facts aren't and coronavirus really reifies that debate into life and death because that's what misinformation leads to in this particular crisis lies cost lives and people are very aware of that thank you very much indeed you've actually answered we had a question that came in um, about who are the main groups behind coronavirus fake news and what are the motivations ideologies driving their behavior i think you've you've covered all all that um, and you started to cover the next question I was going to ask, but I'll, before I ask that question, and I'll address it to all of you, um, just to say that the results of our poll so far is, have you personally seen any fake news or misinformation about the COVID-19 pandemic being spread on social media? So 93% so far have said yes, 0% have said no, 7% uh, say not sure. So that's where we stand on that one. But... You started to touch on ways of um, responding to fake news, um, particularly to those people who are most vulnerable to, their, to the allure of, of fake news. And I wonder if we just tease that out a bit more, because clearly it's really, really important. Um, the COVID, uh, as you said, is, is, it can be a matter of, of life and death. But can more be done to help people who might be susceptible to the allure of fake news? Any open that to any anyone that might want to comment. Um, well, if you start from a premise that you know good, reputable mainstream journalists are journalism is a source of accurate information, then one absolute key thing is to make sure they survive, because mm. what we're seeing at the moment is an environment where a lot of media companies are going bust, laying off staff, while there are no explicit restrictions to press freedom. If you can't pay your reporters. They can't go out and report. Mm. So one um, response to misinformation must be to shore up, shore up the kind of accurate sources of information to make sure they're still economically viable, uh, independent, and keep remain trusted by um, by the public. So that's kind of one obvious way. The other thing which Imran pointed out very rightly is how to get the accurate information out there. And there's there are a lot of fact checkers who do this work who try to actively rebut misinformation and myths but also try to put out accurate information because the people who see the false information are not often the ones who then see the rebuttal so it's trying to make sure that the same people see both bits of information but the absolute key thing is to make sure that 
trusted source of information, whether that's the National Statistics Office, um, whether it's different arms of the civil service, whether it's the media, whether they're given the resources to operate properly and, um, and, and remain financially viable. That can be tricky, though, because I guess people into conspiracy theories, etc., will ine inevitably think, well, this is the, an establishment cover-up or something. Or So how does one uh, respond to that sort of uh, uh, more subtle uh, psychological pressure on people? Maybe Imran has got some insights into, into that. And we spend a lot, so the things that inform our, our work are, first of all, active monitoring, but also we spend a lot of time thinking about the social psychology and behavioral psychology of um, how people consume information. So it's, you know, our, our work is less political than it is almost pedagogical. Uh, it's about how people learn. So there's a lot of research out there to show that fact-checking itself that once someone has swallowed a conspiracy theory, and all conspiracy theories essentially at their core have a leap of faith, um, the work of people like Nyhan and Riefler show that in misinformation around vaccines, for example, once someone swallowed it, it's very difficult to disabuse them of that notion. Mm -hmm. And that shows the value of good quality information. It shows the enormous responsibility on the shoulders of journalists to get to, 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 to spend time to think about um, the information that they're putting out. And, I, you know, I have great admiration for people that choose to spend their lives um, informing the public. Um, but there have been instances already in this crisis where, the, as the advice has changed, the breathless sort of opinions that have followed it in the mainstream media have been, have been contradictory. So whether it was the initial thing about why on earth aren't there enough beds in the NHS? They put up the Nightingale Hospital, and now it's why on earth did you put up so many bloody beds? It was why are there why are there not enough ventilators? The British, you know, Britain's an embarrassment in the country, in the world. We didn't have enough ventilators. The scientific advice changes, and actually, it turns out we don't need full ventilation. So now it's how on earth did they buy so many ventilators? These people are idiots. You know, that, there is there is a, to an extent there is a there is an enormous moral responsibility upon everyone to be measured and thoughtful and careful with how we report things and not and I think the reporting is fantastic it's often quite quite often in the in, in the opinions where you get that highly leveraged version and and unfortunately that the fake media the the fake news media quite often focuses on that breathless opinion the highly leveraged take the the the, the imputation of blame and moral responsibility for what might actually be a failure of information. So, um, I I think that's that 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 is, I guess, one of the criticisms that we that, that we would see is that we are we are really reliant in the counter hate environment on the mainstream media being incredibly. It needs to do its job, and I'm 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 not here to uh, comment on any particular outlet, but. It's uh, it's something that that's a source of frustration at times. That actually sort of leads us on to um, a question that's come in uh, from someone uh, viewing, and um, it says, "Do you have any advice on where to find credible information globally? So, um, are there who are the good sources to be looking for?" Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, uh, <coughs> I don't know if I can butt in. Um, yeah, go for it. Yes, I mean. Uh, I, 
The thing is with this is, I mean, as um, uh, we were saying, the, you know, the, the BBC, for example, has a dif- disinformation monitoring unit, a whole setup um, to try and go through things they think might be fake news and try and you know, place them. So a shot of uh, people sitting with masks in wheelchairs in the street waiting to get into a hospital it was billed as an Italian crisis hospital. And actually it was from the Croatian earthquake. And they proved that just by taking the pictures and going, well, that's not in Italy, that's probably in Croatia. So very clever stuff is going on. And that's going on at the BBC, and I'm absolutely sure it's going on at CNN, the big American networks, uh, public service broadcasting. Um, So, I mean, fake news, I mean, it's always been there, hasn't it? You know, I mean, the Nazis used it uh, to to discredit the Jews. Um, The Catholics used it in the Inquisition hundreds of years ago. Mm. Um, papers have been doing it for decades but we've always mostly been able to disseminate what is fake news and what's not I mean for example April 1st every year till this year when no one was ready to joke the papers always feature a story which is very obviously fake news Um, the trick is now that you know plainly with things like COVID people can hide behind that and come up with things that are not necessarily you think they might not be fake news but they are Um, I think people are always going to be vulnerable, but I think if they are able to turn to the mainstream media, which President Trump, of course, loads because they catch him out all the time. But on the whole, they're doing a good job. I mean, as Imran says, you know, of course, they're, they're challenging each other's stories and, and they're, they're trying to keep the story big. So they're saying, well, why haven't we got any ventilators the next minute? Well, we don't need ventilators. You know, it is crazy, but it's not exactly fake news. It's just what we know at the time. There's a difference between that and making something up. Uh, completely. Um, vulnerable people will always be vulnerable to these things, I'm sure. But if they really want, if they really want to get decent news, then I, I you know, um, of course I'm biased because I worked in it for a long time and things have changed because there's so many different news outlets, but they should be looking to our mainstream media, which on the whole is doing a pretty good job, I think. Mira, maybe you've got some insights on, on this as well. Um, yeah, I was just looking at, we, we've done some research on this and you can find it on our website on how people access um, news on COVID-19. And we did one study that looked at kind of Argentina, Germany, South Korea, Spain, UK and the US. And what you find is that overall people are g- going to look for more news. So there, you know, there is a kind of demand for news right now. And they, but they're getting it not so much directly from the news organisations, but from social media, search engines. That's not to say that they might not come across the BBC, but they'll come across it through something on Twitter and Facebook. So for media companies, making sure you're on these platforms is, is the first step. Be on the places where people are going to find news. We're also finding is that people tend to trust scientists and experts um, in some countries, especially the US and more to the increasingly the UK, it's very polarized. So people to, you know, on one side of the political spectrum, trust the media more and the other side trust government more. And they're often saying quite different things. And the other thing about who's vulnerable is it's very linked to educational levels. So people with lower levels of education are less likely to go to what we would consider kind of respected news organizations for their news now this is not really their fault it's not to say because it's because they're stupid or wouldn't understand it it's often because the best news is behind a paywall so it's beyond mm-hmm. you know beyond their price range it's not written for them so it, so the journalism doesn't address the issues that affect their lives and the stories aren't framed in a way that they see it as relevant to themselves. So one key thing that journalism can really do here is recognize that there are people who are not 
coming to journalism, to, to media outlets for their news and really look at why and not just say, well, it's because they're susceptible to conspiracy theories or they're never going to get it. It's more because the information they're getting is not suited for their needs and it's not at a price point they can afford. So kind of addressing those two things. Thank you. That's interesting. Uh, there's another question here that's come in um, about social media in particular. It says, uh, should people be forced to reveal their identity in social media communication, at least to the platform host? I mean, I can, I can speak to it briefly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a frequent call is for the, the removal of anonymity from social media. There are real risks in some countries where anonymity can be used by um, those people, for example, women in particular, who might feel that they're at risk if they put forward their opinions in some countries in the world or where there is um, tyrannical government. And there are still countries that, that have governments that are truly dangerous and that will, uh, I mean, some of the, in fact, some, some of the countries that purport to be democracies uh, holding an opinion can be lethal. Uh, so that there is, there is a risk there of that being applied wholesale. Um, at the same time, one of the things that, that we know is that most people that put forward opinions that are, semi-bananas um, are using their real name so we we are always surprised and and it's one of the, most people in this space talk about this quite frequently but m most of the people that we're tracking we can find their information fast so if someone puts forward a uh, misinformation or they put forward a hateful view we can usually identify them down to postcode within a minute is the truth you're not really that anonymous on the internet. Mm. That's the truth. That's true. Thank you. We've got, we're running out of time. I think we've got time for two, to deal with two more questions. Um, one that's come in says, uh, compared with other European uh, contexts, the teaching of foreign languages is not a curriculum priority in the UK. Can accessing information in other languages provide a useful check on misinformation and should the learning of other languages be encouraged more? Well, that's a massive question, but I wonder if anyone wants um, to comment on that. So, I mean, I'd always advocate learning foreign languages, spend a lot of time learning French and Italian, but um, one thing that I've done a bit of reporting on is uh, misinformation in foreigners, and often because, um, you know, a huge number of Facebook users are in English and other big languages other than English. It can mean that misinformation in smaller languages um, slips through the cracks. I, did, I reported on examples ago about the story about lemons curing coronavirus and this sort of health-related stuff, which snuffed out in Italian, which was the first language that it emerged in. And Italy, obviously, the first country, big country to see coronavirus really badly. But in Rome, um, there was lots of similar stuff circulating with huge numbers. And it looked like um, you know, this thing had gone viral because someone had translated it from English to Romanian and it had kind of got a big issue with this issue of um, minority languages. I recently actually with um, some stuff in Serbian that was viral in Serbia but had been pretty much snuffed out in English. So um, it's a huge task for, and we saw in um, a few years in, in Myanmar, this sort of ethnic um, against Muslims which was being written in, in Burmese on Facebook and the issue there was that Facebook did not have enough um, staff who spoke Burmese so it's a huge task these platforms expanded across the world in all corners of the world where these languages are spoken and 
it's really difficult, you know, keeping them in English is another thing, but when they're translating the language, and often with subtle cultural, the thing in Burma was um, the phrases used were provoking violence, the cultural meaning of those phrases. It was, it's not always so simple as putting something into a translation machine. Uh, huge um, problem that all the platforms are grappling with, and some might argue that they've and quickly, you know, in an unsafe way. Thank you. Anyone else like to comment on on language? In which case, we will just go on to the final question, which is really uh, asking each of you to to, to give, just give a final comment about what key message you might want to give as a result of this this conversation we've had, uh, and about press, press freedom in the light of coronavirus. So um, whoever would like to kick off, please, please uh, go ahead. Anyone like to offer a, a final thought? I'll start if you like. Um, <laughs> maybe it's predictable, I'm not sure. Um, I think if people want to find out what's going on, stay where they can with mainstream media. I agree with Mira that there, there are problems with paywalls, etc. Uh, particularly some of the quality dailies at the Times and, and of course in America with the New York Times, etc. Um, but you can still get uh, CNN, um, uh, the BBC, uh, you can get the Guardian still. Um, there are lots and lots of outlets where you're going to get 90% certain you're going to get reasonably uh, accurate news. Um, try not to, if you're worried about fake news, try not to read too much into to Twitter um, or to Instagram or any of these platforms really where, you know, there are so many people out there just sort of sitting there in a darkened room uh, tapping out anything they feel like tapping out at the time. Uh, and plainly also people who are much more dangerous, um, you know, people who run governments, people who help run governments who are putting out their own message for their own nasty little reasons. And uh, Mira's right, in the, you know, for example, the Trump administration, you know, they're, they're putting out plenty of their own fake news. Um, Stick to what you believe is probably not fake and you're probably going to be right, is my message, I think. Thank you. Imran, is there anything you'd like to conclude with? I, I, and I guess my observation is, is not so much from the press's perspective, but from the public's in that the duty of curbing the spread of misinformation, given that there's, there are two main means by which we receive information now. One's obviously through the, the various screens that we stare at. But the second is from each other. And from each other, we're receiving it, receiving it primarily via digital means uh, rather than face-to-face. -face. This is almost an extraordinary experiment in the extent to which the virality of information is driven by digital spaces rather than um, channels, rather than physical face-to-face -face channels. That the responsibility is on all of us, that there is a personal responsibility to make sure that the information that you transmit to other people is correct. and you may be spreading information that might cause someone to hurt themselves or to die or to cause someone else to be hurt. And that moral responsibility is extraordinary. Um, I think for the main part, it's exercised with great tradition. And I think we, we, should, we should look at the fact that where I live in, in London, most people have been observing the clinical guidance on physical distancing, social distancing, on being cautious, on washing their hands, etc that for the main part, most of us are, are uh, engaging with it. But I would encourage people to have a look at the recommendations in 
the Don't Spread the Virus uh, campaign that we've been running at the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, which is backed by the Department for Culture Media Sport, uh, um, the, the, the digital department. And that, that, that tells people a very simple checklist of how they can make sure that the information that they spread, that they as individuals transmit to others, is uh, good information and not bad information. Thank you very much. Joey, anything you'd like to leave us with? Um, yeah, I think I'd... Sorry, is my internet connection playing up a bit here? Um, just, I, I think there's been, you know, it's easy to get very, you know, negative and down about the state of the media in coronavirus, but I just think there's been loads of really good reporting um, you know, if you look at the kind of, you know, the FT and their charts, New York Times has done some great investigations, really good stuff on um, the big broadcasters in the UK and people really taking this issue of misinformation seriously now and being kind of conscious of it. And I think, you know, it's really bad time for the media in terms of reven advertising revenue and circulation of print, but traffic is up massively and to read the news at the moment. So we can somehow make that really exciting time for the media. Thank you. Amira, we leave you with the last word. Oh, exciting. Thank you. Um, yes, absolutely. Reinforcing both Joey and Imran's point. Um, support journalism. You know, when you can buy a paper or subscribe to a paper, do. Remember this ex excellent reporting being done by some of the local newspapers, the Yorkshire Evening Post and so on. So there's a lot of good information out there. Support it where you can. Be careful what you share. You know, just while we've been on this call, I've had a WhatsApp message with from a friend with details of how the lockdown will be raised next week. And I asked her, where did it come from? She said, my mom. And I said, can you go, please go and stop <laughs> doing <you>. this? <laughs> and the, the third thing, crucially, is if we can all take some responsibility to learn to really understand how to read numbers properly, how to read data, how to read scientific journals, how to kind of understand what's being told to us about this pandemic, because journalists are trying to filter these messages and frame them, but what would be really useful if there's a chunk of the population that can look at the raw data and, and understand it themselves as well. Thank you very much indeed. And just to give uh, you the results of our poll, so 91% of uh, those uh, watching have said, yes, they have seen uh, misinformation during the uh, pandemic. 9% are not sure, 0% say no. Does that result surprise our panellists? No. <laughs> there we are. Those people are quite streetwise, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Those people are cleverer than we think. Really interesting. So, yeah, thank I think you to remember, lots of people say that they've seen misinformation is a good thing because it means they recognise it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you for everyone for joining us today. You can find out more about the work of Cumberland Lodge on our website, Cumberland Lodge. Uh, .ac.uk and we do hope that you'll join us for our next webinar which is on Wednesday the 20th of May at 11am when we'll be discussing faith responses to COVID-19. Do also spread the word about these webinars and if you think someone else you know might be interested do pass on the information to them. We'll now be broadcasting our webinars on a more regular basis and you can sign up to get alerts about forthcoming webinars on the Keep in Touch page of our website or simply by emailing us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. But finally, a big thank you to our uh, participants today, to Imran, Mira, 
Rob and Joey. And thank you all for watching.